Good morning, you all. It's welcome. It's it's a privilege to be here with you. I was with Vince at GA, and uh, it was a great GA. Um, this week has been a week where I've been reminded personally just of the power of prayer and that God answers prayer. I would have never imagined that in my lifetime this scourge of Roe v. Wade would be overturned. I just really, I never would imagine. Like it's it's really. And answer to prayer, so many people have been praying that God would protect the life of the unborn. The, the, the battle's not over. It goes back to the states. We still have a lot of work to do. Um, but a huge answer to prayer. And this week, uh, another testimony just of how God answers prayer. As I was flying down to uh, General Assembly in Birmingham, Alabama, I, providentially God had me sit next to this man who was a, uh, an engineer, and he, he travels around the world fixing big machines that I don't understand. And um, we just got talking, and he shared about how he grew up in the church, but he got involved in the military, and the military corrupted and ruined his faith. And I, so I was just drawing him out about that. Why is that? How, how did it deconstruct his faith? We just had a, a delightful conversation. I was able to share a little bit of the gospel and ask some questions. It was meant to sort of uh, put a dent in some of his presuppositions, but um, the plane's coming down for a landing, and I just felt like, man, we have so much more to talk about, and, and I chickened out of giving him my name and, and email, and uh, I just was re- regretting that, and uh, I was praying for him throughout the week. The Lord just had him on my mind. I said, Lord, I just, if there's any way that I can get a second shot with this guy, put him on my plane on the way back. And I had no, he, he, he had actually told me, I have no idea how long I'm staying here. It could be a day, it could be three weeks, you know, because he had to look at this big machine and figure out what was broken. So we're praying, and, you know, this just shows a, a lack of faith. You know, the strength of our faith isn't, it's purity, it's the object of our faith, it's the strength. So uh, praying, and, and sure enough, we sit down on the plane, and, you know, I'm not even faithful enough to look around the plane to see if he's there. And I sit down, and my wife sits down next to me, and... He, He's walking down the aisle, and he sees my wife. He says, hey, stranger. And I, th- I, I literally almost, I mean, I was sitting in my seat, so you can't fall over. But, uh, but then I, I just said to him, I said, you know, I've been praying for you this week, and I just never felt our conversation uh, was complete. And I was praying that I'd be able to see you. And, and we had talked, and he said, you know, I think God exists because there's some things you just can't explain. And I said, I think this is one of those things. And uh, we just had a delightful conversation, was able to exchange some contact information. So we'll see what God does there. But our God is a God who answers prayer. And that uh, really has nothing to do with my sermon. Um, but it's a great testimony. My sermon this morning is, is uh, from Matthew 5, verses 1 through 12. It, and I'm just stealing from Jesus' sermon, his most famous sermon called the Sermon on the Mount. And this morning, we'll look just at the introduction to Jesus' sermon. Like all great speakers, not, I'm not talking about myself, I'm talking about Jesus. Jesus grabs the attention of his audience in the introduction by artfully laying out the main idea of his entire sermon. Um, and even those who haven't ever read the Sermon on the Mount, my guess is, if you're unchurched, and you haven't read much of the Bible, and I hope this is a church, I believe this is a church that expects seekers and skeptics to attend. And so we want to answer your questions as well as the questions of those who claim to walk with Christ and know Christ. But even if you're not familiar with the Bible, chances are you've heard some of these Beatitudes. Jesus constructed the Beatitudes to capture the essence of what it means to be a follower of Christ. Uh, 
And like I said, they, they are beautifully poetic, but they're also logically ordered. And they form what theologians of old uh, call a, a golden chain of the Christian life, each link an essential element of what it means to be a Christian disciple. So let me pray, and then we'll jump in. God, thank you so much for being a God who doesn't hide yourself. You're a God of revelation, bending over backwards that we can know you personally and accurately. We see that you spoke to us through the prophets. You spoke to us through miracles. You've spoken to us through your people, the the nation of Israel and the church, but you've spoken most powerfully to us by coming in the flesh and the person of Jesus Christ. And we pray that you would open our hearts and our minds, that we might not just understand these things academically or intellectually, but that we might embrace them personally and be changed by these blessings. Lord, by the power of your spirit, get into the nooks and crannies of our hearts. I pray for any here that are distracted. We have so much going on in our life that it's easy to just think about all those things, grocery lists, um, upcoming meetings. But Father, we pray that you would help us to honor you in this moment by setting aside our distractions and listening intently to the words you have given us, for these are words of blessing. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Matthew 5, verses 1 through 12, Jesus says this in opening up his sermon on the mount. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. As a child, I remember trying to learn how to do a headstand. I wasn't very good at it. I kind of wobbled a lot, but I was persevering and Sometimes I get so exhausted and frustrated that I would kind of sit in an upside-down resting position, you know, sort of that tripod position with your fanny in the air. And uh, as a young, energetic kid, I just, I thought it was hysterical looking at the world from that upside-down perspective. You know, pets walking on the ceiling, lamps hanging from tables, chandeliers sticking up from the floor. Uh, It all looked very strange and ridiculous, but it was quite humorous. And on first glance, the Beatitudes seem just as ridiculous, right? Everything seems upside down. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the hungry. Blessed are the persecuted. It's all upside down. But I think we fail to ask an important question. Whose fanny is sticking up in the air? It's not Jesus. 
Jesus is setting things in their proper place. He's turning us right side up so we can see the world properly. Now, what are the Beatitudes about? Well, the Beatitudes are about blessing. Did you see the giveaway of the repeated word? Blessed. Blessed, blessed, blessed. Blessed, blessed, blessed. He says it eight times. And so if you don't want to miss the blessing, you might want to listen. Jesus is bending over backwards to say, listen carefully, put away all distractions. I want to give you a treasure map of the blessings that are found as you walk with me on a very exciting adventure. Now, as we read the treasure map laid out in the Beatitudes, I want to do two things. First, I want to look at the map's legend or the key. You know, maps often have that. And then second, I want to count the blessings found along the map uh, so that we might embrace them as we follow the map on our Christian journey. So first, maps have a legend or key that helps the traveler interpret the signs. And those who have traveled the lands previously often, you know, add clarifying notes to the map and the key to help future travelers know how to understand the signs found uh, along their way. John Chrysostom, Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Stott, Martin Lloyd-Jones are a few of those who've written in the key, uh, the legend that helps us understand, that's helped me to understand and read this map. Now, nearly all of them agree that the people described in the Beatitudes are the followers of Christ. They're not humanity in general. In other words, contrary to popular belief, the, the Beatitudes do not describe eight different types of people, some of whom are poor in spirit, others of whom are, are merciful, others of whom are, are persecuted, but one group, and all eight Beatitudes describe that group of people, those who are in Christ Jesus, his followers. Okay, So that's the first notation in the key, or the legend of the map. The second notation is, talks about the, the qualities commended, And the qualities commended in the Beatitudes are primarily spiritual. It's not the poor in general, but the poor in spirit that are blessed. It's not those that hunger and thirst for food, but those that hunger and thirst for righteousness that are blessed. This isn't meant to suggest that Jesus was apathetic to the materially poor, just that the blessing he's speaking about isn't primarily economic. The third notation in the, in the key or the legend is that it has to do with the, the clarifying comments about the blessings promised, okay? And there's two clarifications here. First, the blessings are not simply subjective in nature. They are primarily spiritual, but not merely subjective. The Greek word makarios can be translated as blessed or can be translated as happy, In other words, happy are the poor in spirit, happy are the meek, happy are the persecuted. And and those who live the Beatitudes, you know, certainly testify that that living out the Beatitudes restores sort of a sense of sanity and mental health. The Beatitudes really do lead to human happiness in as much as we embrace them and live them out. 
However, there's a danger in translating makarios as happy, because in English, especially today, happy usually describes a purely subjective state of mind. Whereas Jesus is describing objective blessings. John Stott clarified it this way. He says, Jesus is declaring not what the disciples may feel, happy, but what God thinks of them and on what account they are blessed. So that's the first clarifying note about the blessings promised. They're more than subjective. A second note about the blessings concerns the timing. In other words, are the Beatitudes a map of the future in heaven, or are they a map of the present world? And the answer is, they're a map of both. Because the principles described transcend time and space. Notice in verse 1 and 8, the Beatitudes, verse, uh, I'm sorry, the first and eighth Beatitudes in verse 3 and 10 are present tense. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And the other six Beatitudes are future tense. They shall be comforted. They shall inherit, right? The map shows how the present and the future meet. For the kingdom of God is breaking in, in progressive ways. People presently enjoy the first fruits of the kingdom, but the full harvest is yet to come. And in as much as we embrace the Beatitudes, we experience more and more of the kingdom of God as it breaks into our lives and our world. So that's the key for the treasure map, right? The Beatitudes are a map of the Christian life and what it means to be a follower of Christ. The people described are one group, not many, not some who are meek and others persecuted. The qualities commended are primarily spiritual, but that doesn't mean the blessings are simply personal and subjective. They are objective realities that, when embraced, transform the world one person at a time. And those who follow Jesus taste the blessings, begin to taste the blessings immediately, even though they won't fully feast and enjoy, on that, enjoy them until glory. All right, so having understood the map's key, let's count the blessings along our journey with Christ. Now, a journey of a thousand miles always begins with the first step. The first beatitude explains how a person begins their journey with Christ. Verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, you'd expect Jesus to say, blessed are the spiritually rich, because that's what every other spiritual leader and religious leader says. Build up your spiritual capital through religious observance and, and strict morality. But Jesus says the opposite. He says it's not the spiritually rich that obtain the kingdom of heaven, but the spiritually poor. In other words, those who come to God and say, when I take an honest assessment of my life, I have nothing to commend myself for heaven. I recognize I am not as moral as I should be. I know the good I should do. The problem is I regularly don't live up to even my own standards, let alone God's. I certainly don't give him the love and honor he deserves. So God owes me nothing. I look at my spiritual bank account and it's not just low, I'm bankrupt. No other religion says stuff like this besides Christianity. Only Christianity blesses the spiritually bankrupt, not the spiritually rich. This is a radical teaching. 
Now, how is it that the poor are spiritually blessed with the kingdom of heaven? Well, we need to ask, well, what's one of the chief characteristics of poverty? I think if we boil it down, one of the chief characteristics of poverty is powerlessness, a sense of powerlessness, right? The people who are impoverished must must look outside of themselves for sustenance, for deliverance, for protection. And in the same way, the spiritually impoverished person, one who, who suffers the affliction of sin, understands they are unable to sustain themselves, to deliver themselves, to protect themselves. They must look outside of themselves. And a spiritually impoverished person looks to God for salvation while recognizing they have no claim upon God. The prayer of the spiritually poor is, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's the first step a person must take to start their walk with Jesus. It's to acknowledge the depth of their brokenness and sin, just to acknowledge it. Now, the second step is then to repent of it. And this naturally leads to the next beatitude. As we'll see, this beatitude, right, and all the beatitudes, they're logically ordered. Look at verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. As we follow Jesus' logical progression, we discover who is doing the mourning. It's those who are poor in spirit. In other words, this is not the sorrow of bereavement. This is the sorrow of repentance. They are mourning their spiritual poverty, the loss of their innocence, the loss of self-respect and all claims to self-righteousness. See, when you realize your miserable condition, you weep. Because like bankruptcy, you realize it is worse than a bad dream. It is a devastating reality that you can't sleep off and you can't explain away and you can't work yourself out of. These are tears of contrition that come from understanding the depth of your brokenness and taking responsibility for one's sin before a holy God. And when that happens, the blinders come off. And once you see your own sinful rebellion, you begin to have eyes to see not only yourself as you really are, but the world as it really is. So these are Christian tears shed by those who have a more accurate understanding of themselves and of the world as a collective, and everyone is living in rebellion to God. Now, the good news is that Jesus has come to comfort those who shed tears of repentance. He came to preach good news to the poor and to bind up the brokenhearted. They are comforted, not because they mourn, but because Jesus sees their mourning and has compassion on them. Those who mourn are not active agents working to secure their own comfort. They are the passive recipients. They are comforted. In other words, Jesus relieves their spiritual poverty by paying off their debt, by paying off the debt of their sin fully, once and for all, and then filling their bank account with his righteousness. The famous hymn, Rock of Ages, captures the source of this comfort. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked I come to thee for dress, helpless I look to thee for grace. Foul 
I to thy fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. The journey of Christ, the journey with Christ continues with the next blessing. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. To follow Jesus' flow of thought, it's important to note that the Beatitudes on meekness come between the Beatitude about grieving sin and the Beatitude about hungering for righteousness. Thus, Jesus frames the true definition of meekness. Real meekness is driven by humility over sin and hunger for righteousness. If it's driven by any other factors, it ceases to be true meekness. So while the meek are gentle, we must clarify what type of gentleness we talk about. It is a humble gentleness, not a a childish or an effeminate gentleness. False meekness is, is passive and appeasing. True meekness is active. It is hungry for righteousness. The point is truly meek people are simply not concerned with appeasing others. They don't need to prove themselves to anyone. They know the sin that they're capable of, and they also know at the same time how loved and cherished and forgiven they are by Jesus Christ. And that changes their posture. That gets down deep and changes their character. They are humbled by their sin. But they don't stop in that humility because now they hunger for something more, something better. They hunger for righteousness. And when that change happens in a person's heart, not only are they personally redeemed, but they become influential. They become a redemptive leaders. By knowing the comfort of Jesus, by walking in relationship with him, you become like him, and therefore you become a leader of inescapable influence. That's why the blessing promised to the meek is they shall inherit the earth. They who humble themselves, take up their crosses, and love others sacrificially shall be exalted, shall be influencers. And it seems that Jesus was thinking about Psalm 37 when when teaching the Beatitudes, where we read in Psalm 37, verse 1, 9, and 11, fret not yourself because of evildoers, be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb, but those who humble themselves and wait for the Lord, shall inherit the land. The meek shall inherit the earth and delight themselves in abundant peace. Jim Collins, in his very popular New York Times best-selling book, Good to Great, from several years back, discovered the impact of the meek when studying companies that became great companies. Because of all the false definitions of meekness, Jim Collins couldn't bring himself to use the word meek leader, and so he called them level five leaders. And this is what he writes about level five leaders. He says, trying to figure out what makes a good company great, we were surprised, shocked really, to discover the type of leadership required compared To the high-profile leaders with big personalities who make headlines and become celebrities, the good-to-great leaders seem to have come from Mars. They're self-effacing, quiet, reserved, even shy at times. These leaders are a paradoxical blend of personal humility and professional will. Translation, the meek shall inherit the earth. 
you've ever worked for a meek leader, you don't want to work for anyone else. In fact, Isaiah says that they will be the only ones left standing to inherit the new heavens and the earth. But even presently, wherever the meek abide, they yield inescapable influence as redemptive servant leaders who even if they don't know Jesus, they're following the ways of Jesus. The journey of walking with Christ continues with the next beatitude. Verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. The simplest definition for righteousness is rightness. Being right with God, being right with others, being right with yourself, being right with the rest of creation. Jesus is building a kingdom where all things are set aright. And as you personally begin to taste how Jesus makes all things right and restores them, it's like eating a delicious appetizer. You hunger for more of it. You might say you become an addict, an addict of Jesus's righteousness. And unlike any other addiction, this addiction leads to life, not death. All other appetites ultimately will disappoint you because they can't ultimately satisfy. Sex and success or or reputation, they offer some good, but not what our soul ultimately longs for. But those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be satisfied. Philip Yancey described the frustration caused by by worldly addictions, writing, we may fawn over football greats, movie actors, music performers, best-selling authors, yet I must tell you that in my limited experience as a journalist, I have found that our idols are as miserable a group of people as I've ever met. Most have troubled or broken marriages. Nearly all are incurably dependent on psychotherapy. And in heavy irony, these larger-than-life heroes are tormented by self-doubt. But I've also spent time with people I call servants, the meek ones. Doctors and nurses who work among the ultimate outcasts, leprosy patients in rural India, relief workers in Somalia, Sudan, Ethiopia, and Bangladesh. The PhDs I've met are now scattered throughout the jungles of South America, translating the Bible into obscure languages. Now, I was prepared to honor and admire these servants, but I was not prepared to envy them. Yet, as I now reflect on the two groups side by side, stars and servants, the servants clearly emerge as the favored ones the graced ones, without a question, I would rather spend time among the servants than among the stars. See, only Jesus can set things right in every way. That is righteousness. And those who hunger and thirst for his righteousness find the only addiction that increasingly satisfies because it produces life, not death. So the blessing of walking with Christ continues with the next beatitude, verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Having confessed 
Your spiritual poverty and mourned it and received comfort means you're a recipient of mercy. And when Jesus' mercy infects you, it starts to contaminate those around you. And once those around you are infected by that mercy, you're never safe from it. It's the worst pandemic. When you least expect it, it circles back your way and you are reinfected with more severe symptoms. It's ugly. The symptoms of increased trust and vulnerability, restoration, joy, increased energy. Honestly, it's the best contagion, for it knows no bounds. Richard Wormbrandt, a Romanian pastor, was in prison for eight years after the Nazis and then the communists took over Romania. And he spoke before the United States Senate about his tortures for being a Christian and how he was treated in prison. And he writes about the contagious power of mercy. He says this, when, when one Christian was sentenced to death, he was allowed to see his wife before being executed. And his last words to his wife were, you must know that I die loving those who kill me. They don't know what they do. And my last request of you is to love them too. Don't have bitterness in your heart because they killed your beloved one. We will meet again in heaven. Wormbrandt goes on to say that those words impressed the officer of the secret police who attended the discussion between the two to such an extent that he later told Richard Wormbrandt the story in prison for having been sent there for becoming a Christian. Jesus' mercy is the only contagion for which there is no cure. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. John Stott said we must remember that the simple future tense, they shall receive mercy, confirms not simply the the futuridity of the promise, but its certainty. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. The journey of walking with Christ continues with the next beatitude. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Over the course of time, we've purchased two types of water filters in my home. Uh, One for drinking water so that our water doesn't taste so stale or bitter or just weird. And the other filter, it's a charcoal filter for our little marine friends in our fish tank. And without it, scum invades the tank and over time, you get busy (laughs) and things can get so gross and clouded with algae, you actually lose sight of the little marine friends. Who are the pure in heart? Well, it's those who have a gospel filter for their heart. Those who filter their fears and preach the gospel to themselves. They they filter everything, their life experiences, their day through a gospel filter. They acknowledge their desperate need, the brokenness, their sin, their brokenheartedness, their broken dreams. And at the same time, they recognize the faithfulness of God to cleanse to restore, to come through on his promises, to forgive, to redeem. They see God because they remember what he's done for him. They claim his promises. They're looking to him, and they see God come through. And so in preaching the gospel to themselves, it's like a filter 
on the heart. And they see God working through their suffering for good, even though the suffering itself, in and of itself, is terrible. And so their heart is not clouded by toxic doubt or a bitter spirit. But those who turn off the gospel filter grow cloudy of heart. Grime and muck begin to grow. It starts in the corners of the heart and just grows out from there. And as with our charcoal filter, life grows cloudy and confusing and unsure, and they can't see God. And they don't remember or acknowledge his promises. And as without a drinking filter, life begins to taste at best stale, but if we're more honest, just bitter. But those who apply the gospel of Jesus Christ to their heart daily as a filter, those who walk with him and let his promises, his presence have more say than anything else, it acts like a filter on their heart. They increasingly see themselves as God sees them, both more broken than they ever imagined, but more loved and cherished than they can ever comprehend. And they see what's happening in the world through the lens of a God who is in control, who is good. He's amazingly patient. I know we wish that he would just fix people yesterday, but he abides with them even as they rebel, and he woos them. And as we purify our heart with the truths of the gospel, it clarifies everything. And like purified water, life begins to taste better. Every good thing is enjoyed with your perfect lover, God himself, and every hard thing is endured with God. You know you're never alone, and he abides with you, and he shares in your suffering. And so walking with Jesus changes your heart. Like filtered water in a marine world, it enables you to see God in his world enables you to see his work and his ways and, and thus be able to see all things more clearly with hope. The journey continues with the next beatitude, verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now, peacemakers are those who enter a situation where there's strife and warfare and they create peace. In other words, they don't ignore the problems. They're not peace fakers. And they're not causing the problems, just stirring up the pot. They're not peace breakers, but peacemakers enter a situation and, and they redeem the situation because they know the ultimate peacemaker. And walking in intimacy with him, they, they learn his ways. They know the one who came to bring peace in every way, who, who endured the battle of this sin-stained world, and they, they learn to fight that battle like he did where he defeated sin at a, in his life with his words, and he, he overcame it and defeated death in an empty grave. And when he rose again, he had a message. Peace be with you. For he ended the warfare and the strife. See, when you know the ultimate peacemaker, who he is and how he brings peace, it turns you into a peacemaker and these peacemakers become so influential, so effective at bringing hope to the darkness, so effective at bringing reconciliation to enemies and those who are living in strife with each other and with God, that, that they gain a new reputation. Did you see that? It says they shall be called what? Sons of God. 
In other words, people, if you've ever been around a peacemaker, you just know there's something holy about them. They reflect the image of their heavenly father. Now, as we move to the last beatitude, it's important to note that, that those who follow Jesus, the great peacemaker, can only make peace with those who agree to the terms of peace. And not everyone is willing to do that. Jesus not only gives, though, the the last beatitude to set proper expectations, but to encourage his followers for what they will face as they attempt to be peacemakers in a rebellious world. Look at verse 10 and 11. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. See, the, the blessings of God, that it transforms our loyalties. Your new loyalties are, are primarily to Jesus and his, his kingdom. And as a result, you, you know, when you do that, you make yourself an enemy of the world's kingdom and the world's system and its values and its belief. You become a threat to those powers and principalities and beliefs and values. And those who plotted you before you identified with Christ will now persecute you because you identify with Christ. Make no mistake, it will happen at school, at work, on the practice field, around the water cooler, at holiday meals, with family, it will happen. And your temptation will be to grumble and complain and to play the pity party card. But Jesus says you should rejoice. Look at it, verse 12, rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. As one commentator wrote, Jesus doesn't say that we're to retaliate like an unbeliever. Nor are we to sulk like a child, nor are we to lick our wounds in self-pity like a dog, nor to just grin and bear it like a stoic, still less to pretend that we enjoy it like a masochist. Rather, we are to rejoice for two reasons. First, rejoice for your reward is great in heaven. Your reward is not just great It's secure. It's locked up in heaven, so you have nothing to lose. And knowing that enables you not merely to endure hard times, to endure persecution, to endure trials, but to thrive in spite of it. Because you have a joy, a security that transcends all circumstances, no matter how dire those circumstances. The second reason we rejoice, Jesus says, is For so they persecuted the prophets before you. See, on account of your loyalty to Jesus, he lumps you in with the noblest of heroes. This is like you're you're lumped in with the Avengers. Because remember, it was the false prophets who were well-liked. Fearing man and not God, they sold out to be accepted by the popular crowd. But, But those suffering persecution could rejoice in the opportunity to confirm their love and their loyalty to Jesus. That they were Jesus' people, and they loved him on good days, on bad days, whether they were well-liked 
or where they were hated by the culture, they would remain loyal to Jesus and have the opportunity to show that. What a, what a blessed opportunity to show our loyalty and love to Jesus. So there you have it. Jesus' map of the kingdom, accounting of the blessings for all those who follow him, a map of Christian discipleship. It's counterintuitive, but it's, the, it's only because of our, our sin and backwardness that we are turned upside down on our head, and Jesus here is setting things right. And those who change their thinking and embrace the qualities commended in the Beatitudes will increasingly experience the blessings promised. And the blessings of the, uh, of the kingdom are many. They're comfort, a great inheritance, a growing satisfaction, a contagious mercy, a clarifying intimacy with God, redemptive influence, a reputation as sons of God, and with it, persecution. The blessings are many, but the recipients are one, the holy people of God set apart by him to be his representatives. So follow the map, and you will find Jesus, and you will enjoy Jesus, and you will walk with Jesus, for he abides with his people and grants them blessing upon blessing. Do you know his blessings? Do you know them? If not, you can. That journey of a thousand miles with blessing upon blessing upon blessing starts with a single step of weeping over spiritual poverty and turning to Jesus, calling out, God, have mercy on me, a sinner, and being comforted by his grace. Come and receive his blessings. Let us pray. God, we thank you that you are a God of many blessings, not few. Though we confess, we're often confused. We expect your blessings to come in a certain way, and they often come in the exact opposite way. We expect them to come through trying to prove ourselves to you, through being spiritually wealthy, but you know our hearts. You see right through us. You see our hypocrisy. And you tell us that blessed are the spiritually poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And Lord, while this is a, a hard pill to swallow, it's, it's hard to, to take responsibility for our sin and, and our mistakes. It's humiliating. But Lord, at the same time, it's also liberating, for it means that we can have a relationship with you that's not based on karma, but on grace. Grace, undeserved riches. Oh, Father, help us to understand your grace. Help us to be honest with ourselves, to be able to, to take ownership of our sin by, by mourning over it, repenting of it, and allowing you, allowing you to comfort us by paying the penalty of our sin and by giving us an alien righteousness that's credited to our account because of what Jesus has done. And Lord, as that gets into our hearts, the truth of that leaks down into the nooks and crannies. Let it transform us. Let it, let it give us a greater hunger for your kingdom. Let it make us meek. Let us have inescapable influence as your agents of redemption. Let us have the courage to be true peacemakers. God, we pray that you would do this for your glory, for the growth of your kingdom and for the enjoyment of your people. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.